welcome back to this special season of the Dyson House podcast on global health security. I'm James Kafke with the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. Today we'll be ending the season on a decidedly final and somewhat morbid note. I've invited Professor Stephen Cordner to chat with us about forensic pathology and international responses to disaster management efforts post-health crises. Hi, Stephen. Thank you for joining me. Oh, look, it's a pleasure, James. Thanks for having me. So I was wondering if, to start off, you could give an introduction of your current work and research and your work and research history. Well, look, James, I might be a little bit different to most of the people you have speaking on this podcast because I'm a medical practitioner, um, an ordinary doctor I trained as, and after a couple of years in hospital, trained over five years to become a forensic pathologist. And forensic pathology is really the medical specialty of death investigation. And after half a dozen years in London working at Guy's Hospital, I came back to Melbourne and was the first director of the new Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, which essentially, amongst other things, is the medical side of the coroner system in Victoria. So I've been involved since 1987 with death investigation in Victoria. And because of my experience in London, I've always sort of had a, an interest in the international dimension of that. And over the years, that has led to, you know, great interest in and, and involvement with uh, responding to various events overseas, including disasters. Can you give a bit more elaboration on that? What type of things have you been involved in? The very first thing I got involved with internationally was fascinating and really is to do with the fact that Australia's in the Pacific because in 2000 there was an attempted mutiny in Fiji. I think it was in about November, early November 2000 which was some months after George Spate took over Parliament and took Prime Minister Mahendra hostage together with other members of Parliament. And I don't know whether you recall that or you know of it, but for some months, or at least for some weeks, Spate held Parliament hostage, basically because, you know, it's complicated, but he didn't really like the fact that an Indian was Prime Minister of Fiji. And he was helped in that by a unit from the Fijian Army, the Counter-Revolutionary War Unit. And after several months, Spate's effort collapsed and he was arrested and later tried for treason. But in the days after Spate's arrest, the Counter-Revolutionary War Unit from the Fijian Army tried to take over the army. <laughs> and a group of from that uh, unit decided they would, and I think they probably thought that the army would simply fall in behind them, but they didn't. And uh, there was a skirmish during which some of the mutineers were injured, none killed, but they killed three or four soldiers and then the mutineers took to their hills and off into the hills 
over the course of the next couple of weeks, the mutineers slowly gave themselves up. During the course of that, about five of the mutineers were beaten to death by members of the by members of the army. So, after a week or two, there were eight or ten deaths associated with this mutiny, and I got asked by the acting commissioner of police to go and do the autopsy. So that was my first involvement in international affairs and absolutely fascinating and gave evidence subsequently in the uh, court-martial. Court-martial, interestingly, only in the mutineers. No one has ever been charged. No one's ever been held accountable for the deaths of the five mutineers. So, so that was the first and then that was in 2000 and then in about then in October 2002 was part of the response to the um, 2002 Bali bombings. And then in 2003, spent a year with the International Committee of the Red Cross in Geneva, getting involved in the aftermath of events in Yugoslavia and Iraq. And then in years after that, the Philippines for Typhoon Haiyan, Myanmar, Cyclone Najis, uh, Nepal for the great Nepalese uh, earthquake, and West Africa in the Ebola crisis at the time. So um, it's been a range of different things. I'm sorry to be so long-winded, but the common, their common theme, of course, has been the fact that there have been deaths and that the deaths need to be managed. Different aspects of the death need to be managed in those different sort of events. Do you think that uh, Australia has a special advantage in helping facilitating this type of management? Oh, look, that's a really good question. There's absolutely no doubt that the answer to that is yes, particularly in the Pacific. The sort of work that we do is requires a certain size of community before there ever will be a forensic pathologist. You need a population of at least a million or two before you're going to have any forensic pathology service. Just to, for smaller populations, it'll be general practitioners or other doctors, perhaps surgeons, perhaps a local hospital pathologist who might double as or dabble in forensic uh, pathology. So it's easy to see from that that there isn't a forensic pathology capacity. There's not an expert forensic pathology capacity in the Pacific area because nobody's got the population. And so when difficulties arise, Australia, you know, the, the Pacific Island looked to Australia, but it's it, it, a matter of regret to me that I have not been able to organise Australia to provide an organised dependable, sustainable response to the Pacific. So it's always scrabbled together at the last moment when something is needed. And uh, so it's not actually as reliable a contribution as it could be from Australia. Mm. And what's the impetus for this type of disaster response? What really gets achieved? Yes, <laughs> that's another good question. What is really achieved? Yes, well, 
the sort of disaster response that I've been interested in has been when there's large numbers of deaths, numbers of deaths that overwhelm the local capacity to respond in any sort of reasonable way. And what's at risk then is that following a disaster is that bodies are not identified. And if bodies are not identified, families don't get their dead bodies of their missing or dead family members back. And that is a very significant impost on that family as the following week, months and years unfold. So if bodies are not identified, there can even be, you know, the very sad fact that there won't be a death certificate. Now, if you haven't got a death certificate in Melbourne, you're going to be in real strife. If you've had a death in your family and haven't got a death certificate, you can't deal with your dead mother, your dead mother or father's bank account. You can't get it closed. You can't sell the house. You can't, if it's a husband or wife, you can't get remarried. The will can't be acted on. All sorts of practical problems arise, quite apart from where, where's my mother's body? So, you know, it's the fact that the world deals with this extremely badly, unfortunately, means that when there is a big disaster, the tail of the disaster is very long and wags quite badly and families live the consequences of them unnecessarily, in my view, for a very long time. So I'm probably getting to the end before we've gone through the beginning and the middle, but uh, the, the serious problem is that do not deal well with large numbers of deaths. And it's not actually all that hard. It isn't rocket science. It is a matter of will and it's a matter of a little bit of preparation and a lot of a, a lot of hoof arrangements which are not complicated if you know what to do. So that's that's what interests me about this and we've got a bit of a way to go before we get there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that definitely, to me at least, outlines the importance of intergovernmental aid in providing that type of capacity to countries that don't have it. What do you see as the importance and role of groups like the Red Cross in forensic pathology and in disaster response and that type of thing? Well, look, I have to disclose, I don't think it's a conflict of interest, but I have worked for the Red Cross. I spent a year in Geneva with them in 2003, and I've done quite a few things since. I'm a bit of a fan of the of the Red Cross, and they have a wide range of contributions, of course, that they make. The International Committee in Geneva, of course, responds to many things, including wars and violence on a large scale. And that was how I first got involved with them. And it is really because of the Red Cross that the issue I've just been talking about, how to respond to events with large numbers of deaths, which overwhelm local 
capacity to respond. It's really only because of them that there is any effort at all to try and deal with it. Uh, now, other people have joined, thankfully, and, and I'm sure we'll get there in the goodness of time. But so the Red Cross realised that the dead following war are obviously a category of victim. And the Red Cross is responsible through the Geneva Convention for victims of war, and that includes the dead. So in the early 2000s, they put in huge, huge effort, which they have sustained ever since, to try and make a difference in this space. And responding to the dead following a war is really, in a conceptual sense, quite similar to responding to large numbers of dead following a disaster. So the Red Cross is heavily involved in both. Yeah, very interesting. You told me before this interview started that you've had work experience or involvement in dealing with the Ebola crisis and the outcomes of that. I was wondering if you could talk me through that. Yes, well, look, the Ebola crisis in West Africa, you know, there were at the end of the crisis something of the order of twelve or 15,000 deaths. I can't remember the exact number now. And so this was, although it occurred over a year or 18 months, this was a huge disaster. And there were large numbers of dead and an added complexity was the fact that the dead were one of the main vectors of transmission of this disease to the living. And that fact arose from the cultural practices of how the dead were dealt with in a funerary sense by local communities in West Africa. And you don't need me to tell you that um, places like Liberia amongst the poorest countries in the world. And so when a member of your family dies, and your family might have people in living in the nothing bigger than the size of this office that I'm speaking to you from, which is just an ordinary size, small office. The four or six people living in said place, they probably take turns at sleeping in it. One of that four to eight member family dies, the body stays in that little place for some days as it is washed and hugged and kissed and looked after. You know, the rest of the family has arrived to pay their respects over the coming days. People travel long distances to come to do that and will be taken and, you know, can't afford a cemetery, so taken out into the bush and buried somewhere in the bush. So that's funerary situation and in the washing and kissing and hugging the body person has died of Ebola the Ebola virus will go through mucous membranes or little cuts or sores that people commonly have on their hands or face that person will become 
infected and that was a very common mode of transmission in West Africa. So how the dead were managed was crucial to getting control. Your question was, you know, how did you get involved in that? Well, the, the Red Cross was very interested in trying to do what it can to the resolution of that problem of how to manage the dead. I was wondering from your experience what you saw the role of international collaboration in that crisis being like. Well, by the time the International Federation was working very closely the Liberian Red Cross in Monrovia and had been allocated the task of training dead body collection teams in government extremely effective in doing that numbers of Liberian volunteers, I met many of them, came forward on purely tropic but humanitarian grounds. They felt they helped their country in a time of crisis. They were paid 10 or $15 a day to go around as members of a team to pick up the dead and then take them to the crematorium. So, but it was a fantastic um, example of the International Federation working with the local Red Cross and in turn interacting with Médecins Sans Frontières whose contribution to result was nothing short of heroic. Médecins Sans Frontières lost many of their staff died in their response to the, the polar crisis. Approximately 500 healthcare workers in West Africa died during the course of the response, died providing healthcare services, a sacrifice which simply hasn't been sufficiently recognised and the contribution of Médecins Sans Frontières has not yet been sufficiently well recognised. The cross movement particularly the International Federation and, and the local Red Cross did, did wonderful work too. So it was beyond the capacity of governments in West Africa to deal with this themselves. Yeah. What do you think the biggest weaknesses with these types of responses are or the biggest areas for improvement? Ah, look, that's, <laughs> that's a great question too. Well, look, I'm, that's a little bit outside my expertise, I think, to really answer that. But I have experienced competitiveness to always work together in the best interests of their common goal, that the interests of the actor and the specific institution is a competing interest to the achievements of the goal. So that's, I suppose, a human trait. The international actors might have slightly different goals, might see what is progress slightly differently. So you can have, you can probably have, I suspect, too much international response. It's somehow the country going through the turmoil somehow has to work out, you know, how it will best get the response. There can be also a problem, I think, at a policy level in the response when people realise they haven't got anybody that knows anything about a specific technical problem. And uh, there is an issue, I think, about the events lacking technical know-how 
in the leadership of it. And of course, that'll almost, by definition, that will always be a problem. So how to, how to connect up the leadership and the response on the ground, I think, must always be a pretty challenging problem for bringing the response into being. Yeah, for sure. So this entire conversation, we've sort of been circling around the elephant in the room. So in bringing it back in, I was just wondering if you could walk me through how this type of response and relief is playing out in the COVID crisis and also as well, anything that you think that this crisis will change in this field? Well, with dealing with large numbers of debt, that extends from the wealthiest country in the world. Everybody's seen on the web the pictures of large grave sites in New York being tended to by, you know, not volunteers. So there's some corners being cut there. I suspect, however, that in places like South America, perhaps in Brazil, where everybody's probably also seen the mass of a very cemetery areas with huge numbers of grave sites prepared, having had so-called mass graves in, in Brazil, to give you a little bit of confidence that perhaps they know the names of the bodies that are being interred and that they can, you hope that they're going to work where they're going in so that families will be able to go back to them at some sort of time. So the first part of the answer to your question is how to where yet that the deaths are on such a scale that they have so overwhelmed local capacity isn't being attended to. But I think we're close to that. And then this this pandemic, I have to suppose is that there won't be international responses to scale that overwhelmed local capacity. So there won't be an international response, whatever ability there is to help people deal with this aspect and other aspects of the disaster. How it is affecting things on the ground in the serious trouble spots of the world in the Middle East, in Yemen and other places of conflict and making it even more difficult responding to that aspect of this as well, which is that the advice from the ICRC and from the WHO is bodies can be either buried or cremated. There is no ground on transmission of the virus basis to uh, cremate so that the Muslim population, for example, to cremation are perfectly able to bury their dead. But if you want cremation, of course, you can have cremation. And there are some one or two parts of the world seem to be weaponising slightly this issue to require cremation, which is acting to the detriment of um, a local Muslim population. One country that comes to mind is, is Sri Lanka, unfortunately. It's got a very small COVID epidemic. I don't think there is a high level of testing, but be that as it may, the community is not, you know, a sudden upsurge in deaths. So they're, as far as I'm aware, they're death from COVID figures, not even in triple figures. And But the government has passed a regulation saying that all, all bodies will be cremated 
and that has led to some of Sri Lanka, which is claiming that is uh, unconstitutional. So that'll, that's going to play out in July of this year. Mm. It's all very interesting, yeah. If you had to crystallise your take on coronavirus, what do you think is going to happen in the future with our responses to this? Do you think we're going to adapt or do you think we're going to be better prepared? Yes. Well, look, I'm not a virologist or an epidemiologist. I can only speak to this insofar as it touches on forensic pathology. I mean, there's a huge people who are having a hard time of it, even in Australia. But generally speaking, we've been lucky. And only 100 deaths in Australia and uh, well over 100,000 deaths. If we had had that rate of deaths uh, in Australia, uh, and we've had 100, so that just shows how fortunate we've been. So I think there are much worse things happening than we've seen to date in places like South Asia and Africa. Whether we will ever even know what's happening in parts of the world remains to be seen. This CDC in Africa puts out a number each day, but how reliable that is when you can only, you know, quite reasonably imagine that the amount of testing in many parts of Africa must be low. A lot of remote areas where there'd be perhaps the virus hasn't got to yet, but might be quite vulnerable when it does. I really would like Australia to turn its mind to providing a forensic pathology capacity because no Pacific country will ever have an expert, including Fiji, will ever have an expert forensic pathology function. And so, for example, in uh, Tonga, they had a couple of deaths. It was just such a tragedy. The two babies who were coming along for their routine and it was a tragic accident. The nurse mixed up the vials with another vial that was in the same storage cabinet, which was an anaesthetic agent a curare-like anaesthetic agent and injected two infants, one straight after the other, with this and both babies died because of an inadvertently wrong injection. Now, if that had been dealt with by the local system, they would never have worked it out. Simply, it would have been a mystery and that would have had a huge negative impact on the vaccination set up in Tonga. For example, the number of measles infection around the world is going up and the number of deaths from it is going up. So it's a becoming a public health issue. So fortunately, the system and WHO got involved and they could see the long-term consequences of not investigating these deaths properly. And we got asked to send a pathologist over there. It was clear that the deaths were due not to the vaccine, but was deaths associated with injecting the wrong substance. 
as it happened, the nurse got charged with manslaughter. And it was six or 12 months before the government would announce to the population what happened. So for six months to 12 months, the population was feeling very angry about the vaccination program. But with the truth having come out, that is turning around. So that is a very example of what happened when you don't have good death investigation. And the Pacific will never have it. And the only people around who have got it, who can give it, is Australia. And unless Australia actually brings that capacity about, there will be, it is only a question of when there will be a disaster that affects people in the Pacific and possibly in Australia as well. For sure, yeah. Thank you very much for joining me today, Stephen. No, that's a great pleasure, James, and thank you for your interest. That concludes this special season of the Dyson House podcast with the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. Check out our other seasons on soundcloud.com forward slash Dyson House. I'm James Kafke, and thank you for tuning in.